0: may have heard someone say, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Implying, at least in part, that every word in their version of the Bible came directly from the original text. But nothing could be further from the truth. And today, we'll look at a popular passage in your Bible that almost certainly wasn't originally included in John's Gospel. to episode 13, The adulterous Variant. As I've stated in previous episodes of the podcast, I spent some time pastoring. In fact, it was over 10 years that I pastored, and a large majority of that was as a youth pastor, but I also served as a Christian ed pastor, and I taught adult Sunday school, and I had a lot of different roles while I was there. And I was brand new to pastoring. I had spent Almost 20 years selling real estate as an agent. And prior to that, I was a junior high English teacher. And so, as I came into this role as pastor, there were a few things that I learned to tread lightly around. And one of those things was the sacredness of scripture. As I delved into my master's degree and then into my doctorate, I became convinced that while the biblical text that we have today is totally reliable, it also most certainly contains many problems. And as I got my head around that in the academic setting and then decided, hey, it would be a good thing to bring this into the church setting as well, I gotta be honest, it was really awkward. And the text that we're looking at today is one of those texts that some pastors just decide not to deal with because they don't know how to deal with it. And so today in the podcast, we're gonna show you behind the textual variant curtain and we're going to expose John 7:53 through 8:11 for what it is. And it's nothing to be scared about. It's something that's been discussed for generations. And even though it might be a new discussion to you, you can have confidence that good Bible-believing Christians have examined this and delved into it and have opinions on it. And it's a safe conversation to have. So if you have a copy of the Bible with you, if you're not driving or something like that right now, it might be good to actually get your copy out if you have a physical Bible or if you normally do that online, however you do it on your phone. It'd be good to just look up the version that you normally read in because every English version of the Bible does something slightly different with this bracketed text, John seven fifty three through eight eleven. It's the story of the adulterous woman And if you go into the NASB, the version that I normally use, it's put within brackets. The ESV, English Standard Version, has put double brackets around it. And they even have a footnote that really kind of tells you part of the problem about this text. It says, some manuscripts do not include John 753 through 811. Others, other manuscripts, add the passage here, meaning after John 7.52, or there are other manuscripts, it says, that add it after 7.36 or after John 21.25, and believe it or not, there's actually some manuscripts that add the text that we're about to look at in the Gospel of Luke, after Luke 21.38. And the ESV then takes John 7.53, part of the disputed text, and puts it at the beginning of chapter 8, right before verse 1. The New King James has a footnote that says, NU, which is a manuscript text, brackets 7.53 through 8.11 as not in the original text. And then it says, they are present in over 900 manuscripts of John. The NIV, some of you might be an NIV reader. There are large black bars across the page before and after the following footnote, which says, the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 through 8.11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7.36, 21.25, Luke 21.38, or after Luke 24.53. So that's not all the English versions, but those are some of the more popular ones that are used today. And every single one of them puts a note associated with this piece of text that is in dispute. And I know what you might be thinking. Well, if this isn't a part of the original text, why is it in my Bible? (laughs) That's a beautiful question. And to help answer that question today, we're going to bring in an article by Daniel B. Wallace. Dr. Wallace has taught Greek and New Testament courses at the graduate level since 1979. He has a Ph.D. from Dallas Theological Seminary and is currently the professor of New Testament studies at that school. And more importantly for this particular conversation, it's his Greek grammar that's called Beyond the Basics, an Exegetical Syntax of the New Testament, published by Zondervan in 1996. That Greek text has become a standard textbook in colleges and seminaries. He is the senior New Testament editor of the Net Bible. That's the New English Translation Bible, and it's available on the Internet for free. Dr. Wallace is also the executive director for the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. So this is a heavy hitter in the theological world of Greek manuscripts. This is a guy that knows his stuff. We're going to bring in an article that he wrote back in June of 2008, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But get this, the title of his article is, My Favorite Passage That's Not in the Bible. So let's just dive into Wallace's article, and in the process, we'll begin to understand the discussion surrounding these verses in the Bible. Uh, Just also, one definition, a codex. You might not be familiar with what a codex is, and Wallace is going to be talking about it. A codex is simply just an ancient manuscript text in book form rather than in scroll form. So when Wallace mentions a codex or codices, that's just what he's talking about. He begins by saying that the oldest large codices of the Bible that we have lack this whole section of verses. Both of these codices are from the 4th century AD, and they're normally considered to be the most important biblical manuscripts of the New Testament extant today that we have today. Neither of them have these verses. Another codex from Alexandria from the 5th century that we have also does not have this whole passage in it. So as we begin to talk about this woman caught in adultery passage, it's just important to understand from a biblical textual standpoint, the oldest copies of the text that we have currently with us today, they don't include this whole story. But Wallace says it's not only the early Greek manuscripts that we have that lacked this text. He says the great majority of Greek manuscripts through the first eight centuries also lacked this pericope this section. And except for one codex, virtually all of the most important Greek witnesses through the first eight centuries don't have these verses. It's important to note that although the story of the woman caught in adultery is found in most of our printed Bibles today, the evidence suggests that the majority of Bibles during the first eight centuries of the Christian faith did not contain this story. So externally, he says, most scholars would say that the evidence for it not being an authentic part of John's gospel is rock solid. And Wallace is not alone in that opinion. The majority of textual scholars agree with him. The evidence just simply, when you put it on the table, suggests that the early Christian church did not have this story as a part of the Bible. So where does that take us? Well, Wallace goes on to say this. One of the remarkable things about this passage, in fact, is that it is found in multiple locations. While it says most manuscripts that have it place it in its now traditional location between John 7.52 and 8.12, but an entire family of manuscripts has the passage at the end of Luke 21, while another family places it at the end of John's Gospel. Other manuscripts place it at the end of Luke or in various places in John 7. So, this pericope has all the earmarks of a section of scripture that was looking for a home. And it took up a permanent residence in the ninth century in the middle of the fourth gospel. So, breaking away from Wallace for just a moment, I realized just as we've begun this podcast, if this is brand new information for you and you're a longtime Bible reader, maybe a church attender, you may not have heard any of this before, even though it's right there in your Bible bracketed and footnoted you may have just passed right by it and it can be a little unsettling it was for me the first time I delved into this but it's important to understand as Wallace says in his article if the question of its literary authenticity i.e. whether it was penned by John or not is settled the question of its historical authenticity is not He continues, it is indeed possible that these verses describe an actual incident in the life of Jesus, and they found their way into our Bible because of having the ring of truth. And I'll just break in here. So we've got this interesting situation where textually, there's really no question that it wasn't a part of the early tradition. But from a historical standpoint, lots of people argue that this story may actually be historically accurate, even though it wasn't included. So maybe there was an oral tradition associated with this story, and then a scribe at a later time inserted it into the text. So, how then did this passage make it into our modern translations? Well, there's a couple different things that I'd like to point out. In the Bible Knowledge Commentary's discussion of this passage, it points out that for the Roman Catholics, this passage is authoritative because it's in the Vulgate. So, for just a little history around this, the Latin Vulgate was translated by Jerome Uh, He was asked by the Pope to take some of the Latin texts that had been translated from the Greek already, gather those together, and create a standard Latin version of the Bible that would be used for centuries in the West. And so for Roman Catholics, this passage is authoritative because it ended up in the Vulgate. So even though the passage may not have been part of John's original manuscript, Catholics nevertheless accept the passage as having God's authority because the Vulgate includes it. okay. So with the Roman Catholic history of this being a part of their Bible for centuries, then we get to the King James Version. The first widely used English version was largely based on about a half dozen late manuscripts that included the passage. So when King James authorized his version... They're using late Greek manuscripts that included this story, so it was also included in the King James Version. So with those two histories, the Catholic Church using it and it being present in the King James Version, which was widely accepted, again, for centuries, it's created a complicated history that has been difficult to overturn. And Wallace suggests that, in a word, there has been a long-standing tradition of timidity among translators He says that one 20th century Bible relegated the passage to a footnote. But when the sales were rather lackluster, probably because it was in a footnote, it again found its place back into John's Gospel. He says even the Net Bible, for which... He's the senior New Testament editor. The Net Bible has put the text in its traditional place. But the Net Bible also has, he says, a lengthy footnote explaining the textual complications and doubts about its authenticity. And the font size in that Bible version is smaller than normal, so that it will be harder to read from the pulpit, he says. <laughs> But he concludes, nevertheless, we made the same concession that other translators have made about this text by leaving it in. let's break away from Wallace for just a minute, and I'd just like to look at the text as it sits in its context and also suggest what the text would look like if this pericope was not included. So again, our bracketed text begins at John 7.53, the last short verse in chapter 7, and continues to 8.11. And if you remember from our last episode, at the end of chapter 7, we have that Nicodemus character popping back into a scene with the Pharisees, and Nicodemus says this in verse 51, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And then the Pharisees answer Nicodemus in verse 52, they answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And then the questionable text starts and simply says everyone went to his home, which in the flow of the passage really is kind of an abrupt ending to that whole previous chapter set of events. But we've learned to read it that way so it doesn't seem so out of place. But let's assume possibly that this text was inserted and continue from 752 to 812. How would the text read if we took this passage out? Well, Nicodemus would make his statement, and then the Pharisees would answer, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And then immediately we would have Jesus speaking up again. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees, verse 13, said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. In other words, if we take this pericope, this questionable scripture out of the text and just read the text the way it would read if it wasn't included, the flow of the passage actually makes more sense. And that's one of the arguments that the textual critics also make. And one of the reasons I picked Wallace's article is for this next argument that he makes. Because he says this, and I quote, I believe it's time for us to own up to our tradition of timidity and recognize that this has not helped the church in the long haul. It's time to close the gap. And then he makes a bold statement. He says, I'm calling for translators to remove this text from the Gospel of John and relegate it to the footnotes. And he admits, although this would be painful and will cause initial confusion, it's far better that lay people hear the truth about Scripture from their friends than from their enemies. They need to know that Christ honoring, Bible believing scholars also do not think that this text is authentic, and that such a stance has not shaken their faith one iota no cardinal truth is lost if these verses go bye-bye no essential doctrine is disturbed if they are cut from the pages of god's word so that's a pretty bold suggestion that wallace makes but if the text really wasn't there in the original version how much weight should our tradition hold and at what point do we say like wallace suggests it's time to cut it out and treat it for what we know it is today, not what we thought it was throughout a large portion of our history. Wallace continues with this. One of the practical implications of this is as follows. When Christians are asked whether this beloved story should be cut out of their Bibles, they overwhelmingly and emphatically say no. The reason given, it's always been in the Bible, and the scholars have no right to tamper with the text. But the problem with this view is manifold. First, he says, it is historically naive because it assumes that this passage has always been in the Bible. And second, it is anti-intellectual by assuming that scholars are involved in some sort of a conspiracy, that they have no basis for excising verses that exist in the printed text of the Bible. Without the slightest shred of evidence, many lay people, and not a few pastors, have a knee-jerk reaction to scholars who believe that these 12 verses are not authentic. A little later, Wallace continues, Now, to be sure, there are biblical scholars who are attempting to destroy the Christian faith, and there are textual critics who are not Christians. But the great translations of our time have largely been done by honest scholars. Some of them are Christians and some of them are not. But their integrity as scholars cannot be called into question when it comes to passages such as this pericope. So Wallace acknowledges a very real thing that exists. There are people attacking the scriptures and claiming that the scriptures are not true. But we can't lump all of those arguments in with good scriptural and textual criticism done by responsible people on the few passages that probably really didn't exist in the original text. And part of the responsibility of church leaders, and I've already shared how difficult it was for me, to sort through the arguments that are out there and identify which ones have legitimacy and which ones don't. But largely, that sorting doesn't happen within the church. It's complicated. It takes a long time to describe. Most people probably don't really even care. But I believe it's an effort that would benefit the church in the long run, is what Wallace is arguing. And I I agree with him. Going deeper with scripture, even though it's complicated and takes effort, always produces a better outcome in our understanding of scripture, in our application of scripture, and our trust that scripture is reliable and that it's God's word. Wallace finishes his article this way. It is the duty of pastors for the sake of their faith to study the data, to know the evidence, to have firm convictions rooted in history, and we dare not serve up anything less than the same kind of meal for our congregations. We do not serve the Church of Jesus Christ faithfully when we hide evidence from lay people. We need to learn to insulate our congregations, but not isolate them. And I'm going to repeat that last statement, and I want to camp on it just a little bit because I think there's a lot of truth in just the way he said that. When leaders in the church hide evidence like this from lay people, we're not serving the church faithfully. He says, we need to learn to insulate our congregations, but not isolate them. How do we insulate our congregations? We insulate them by giving them the sorted out truth talking about conspiracy theories that aren't true, but also bringing into view the textual criticism that is well-supported, without a slippery slope fear that the whole Bible would then be in question. The knee-jerk reaction of most people is a slippery slope fallacy. There are lots of variations within the manuscripts that we have and because of the great number of manuscripts that we have, we are able to see through those variations and get very close to what the original text would have been. But it's only by embracing the variants that we are able to get to the original. And if we ignore the variants, if we don't have discussions within the church about the variations, what we're doing is opening the door for those variations that were likely not included in the original to make their way into our tradition and our history. And that's exactly what's happened with this text about the adulterous woman. So if you're a Bible reader and you're serious about finding out what it really says, your desire should be insulation with the facts. I'll repeat it again because Wallace said it so nicely. We need to learn to insulate our congregations, but not isolate them. So as we bring this episode to a close, I just wanted to reemphasize that I've presented the opinions of Wallace largely in this episode, and he is representative of the majority of scholars, but as with any controversy, there are good Christian people that have presented arguments not only for the historicity of this passage, but also for its inclusion in the original gospel. And again, a fully insulated congregation would also need to consider those arguments in the discussion. And along those lines, there was a book back in 2016 published called The Pericope of the Adulterous in Contemporary Research. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes, along with the link to a blog post by one of its authors, Larry Hurtado, who gives a nice summary of what you'll find in the book. If today's episode whetted your appetite but didn't answer all your questions, this book is probably the most comprehensive and most recent work on the topic. Well, that's it for today, and in the next episode, we'll move on into John chapter 9, and we'll discuss how Jesus taught, through his healing of a blind man, that it's okay to work on the Sabbath. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on the Rethinking Scripture podcast.